0: Uh, but turn with me to Proverbs 13, if your Bibles are open. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, we'll be glad to put one in your hand. It uh, should already be marked. We'll just read the first, um, first four verses, and then we'll go from there as we work our way through tonight. Proverbs 13, starting in verse 1, a wise son heeds his father's instructions, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. He who guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich." Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful to be here tonight. As we sang just a few minutes ago, may your Holy Spirit flood this place. May you use your word to just, again, as you did in worship and now just in this brief prayer. We pray for your presence, Lord, to settle our minds, settle our hearts, clear the distractions of the day. Lord, just flood this place that we would hear from you, that you would minister to each person what they need, including me. Lord, each and every one of us would hear this message, Lord. Uh, it's from your word, and it's for every one of us, Lord. And so you would speak by your spirit. We pray that you would minister in our midst tonight in a great way, leaving here, Lord, more like you than when we, became, when we came in the doors. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you see the title of um, our time of the word tonight? Work that's never wasted. You ever done things that you feel like, well, that was a wasted effort. You got a lot of those moments in life, right? You look back and say, why did I work so hard on that? Especially when it comes to, I've learned this with planting certain things. It really seems like a wasted effort at times. Although I have learned through some dying plants some spiritual truths too, but nevertheless, it seems like a waste of money or things of that nature. But in the world around us, everyone's working on something. You know, everyone's moving in some direction, working on something. Some even work really hard on a plan not to work. See some of the people out there, I'm like, it's like 80, 90, 100 degrees out there, and you're standing out here all day doing this. That, that seems almost as taxing as going and doing something else. Not, I'm not talking about people that have mental issues. Or I'm just saying people that are able-bodied. And you're like, you've got to work pretty hard not to work sometimes. Most... Work in whatever way that they do to find their own definition of personal happiness. People work to find some level of happiness. And they work hard enough, I'll, I'll find happiness. I remember the um, first time we ever watched the movie "White Christmas." Is it OK to talk about Christmas this far away? I have to wait till July, Christmas in July, or something like that. But first time I watched "White Christmas," you know, Bing Crosby's in it, and uh, there's these two dancing sisters. And w- one of them says something to him, and he says, oh, come now, everyone's got an angle. And he's like, everyone's working on some angle. Everyone's working on some edge. And that's true, isn't it? Everybody's working with some... It, what, it, what it is is everyone's working with some plan in mind. It might not be a great plan, Might be a, might not be a well-formulated plan, but everyone's working on something, something they want to accomplish, something that they want to ful- uh, fulfill in their life. But God's called us as the church and as individuals in the church, as believers, to do the work of the Lord. What he has actually pre-designed for us before the foundation of the earth says, this is what I want you to do. This is what will fulfill you. This is what I'll bless. This is what you'll walk straight into heaven like Enoch one day doing my work all through your life. He's also called us to work out our salvation. That's not really easy, is it? It's not easy to do the right thing. It's not easy to right, walk the right way. It's so much easier to just give up and just do what everyone else does. It's not easy to work out our salvation. not easy to work for the Lord. But it's fruitful. It'll bring lasting peace. It doesn't always come as soon as we expect it. It takes time. We've got to wait for harvest, don't we? Those things take time. But the work that we do for the right motives for the Lord in obedience to Him will never be wasted. Do you believe that? It'll never be wasted. Sometimes it might be years later. I never remember the first time I heard someone preach this. It wasn't original with me, but I remember um, the first time I heard someone talking about the prayer of Zacharias. Remember he had John, sometimes called John the Baptist, even though he wasn't a Baptist. He did a lot of baptizing, but anyway. So remember, he was in there praying for the sins of the people. And the angel says, the Lord has heard your prayer. It was really the prayer they had been praying for years ago to have a child. Because he was in there praying for the parents. He wasn't in there that you couldn't go in there and have, uh, tonight we're just going to pray all about me and Elizabeth's child situation. No, he had to pray over the people. That's what he was in there. And the Lord said, hey, your prayer that you prayed a long time, that was not wasted time in prayer. So things that we did in the past won't be wasted. God will honor that. So we want to look at these thoughts as a backdrop tonight as we start in verse 1, and you'll see where the, where it fits uh, as we go through the text. Starting verse 1, a wise son, he's his father instru- father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Now we've touched on this a number of times as it relates to children and young people listening to the counsel instructions of their parents. By the way, Proverbs, like the Psalms, uh, very repetitive, so we won't go deep diving every single time we've repeat a certain verse, so, just, so we'll kind of move through some quicker than others, not just tonight, but any night. But anyway, we've touched on this. Um, young people, certainly the Scriptures uh, are clear that, uh, to listen to the counsel and the instruction of parents. But the spiritual application, because we're the children of God, for us listening to and obeying the commands and the instructions of our Heavenly Father, we certainly are wise to listen to the voice of our Father. The word scoffer here, it says, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. The word scoffer here is used also uh, in 1 Peter 3.3. 3. And let me double check that, make sure it's 1 Peter 3.3. 3. Someone can double check me Bear. I'm pretty sure it's 1 Peter 3.3. 3. Um, and it's a different, now, the word scoffer in Peter's epistle is a different word because it's a Greek word where this word scoffer is a Hebrew word. But they mean the same thing. They both have the meaning of mocking or deriding. Um, I'm sorry, Second 2 Peter 3.3. 3. 2 Peter 3.3, 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. And certainly we have a lot of scoffers today. We, you know, we have a lot of people that mock the scriptures, right? That mock, oh yeah, Jesus has come back. Y'all been saying that for like 2,000 years. And that's usually the way that we kind of uh, think of scoffers. But in 2 Peter 3 3, um, this same word, scoffer, also used by Solomon here in Proverbs, uh, this mocking or deriding, well, that is an action that's that's very specific to. Mock God or to mock Christians, or yeah, you, you guys believe these end times prophecies, or you believe that you really have a home in heaven. With you know, I've, I've, I've read atheist blogs and you know, you're mythical God and all these kind of things, and so that kind of mocking is very proactive. So, a lot of people would say, Well, I'm not that, so I'm not a scoffer, but look at what the text says. But a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. We would say that just because someone doesn't listen or doesn't obey does not mean that they mock or scorn God. But the Word of God makes very little distinction, does it? Does that make sense? The Word of God makes very little distinction between one who actively mocks and one who just ignores. You see, in the Word of God, both of them, in God's viewpoint are a form of mocking. To to ignore God is also to mock. Now, this makes sense, too, because if you were talking to someone and they didn't mock you, but they refused to answer you, some people would get a little upset about that, right? I'm talking to you. They give you this. Maybe not even just, no, I just ignore you. If your teen just ignore and will not turn around and listen, do you think that's sitting well? It's a little form of mocking, isn't it? So God's viewpoint... One that doesn't listen also mocks. The, the, the difference here is striking. It's either obedience or it's resisting whatever the form may be. Let's look at the next verse. Verses 2 We'll look at 2 and 3 together. A man shall eat well by the fruit of his mouth, but the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. And there's a mouthful there altogether, huh? And we covered this at length last week on the tongue tongue and the mouth of the wise, that when the tongue is, or when the heart is right, when our heart is right with the Lord, whenever our heart is right, the mouth will follow, right? Jesus said, out of the mouth proceeds what the desires of the what? Heart. So Jesus made clear that the heart and the, the mouth are tied together. The heart's right, the mouth will follow. The heart's wrong, the mouth will follow. If the heart's right, our mouth will be used as a blessing. And God will bless us in life as we use our mouth. He'll bless us. The text is clear on this. But also, it protects us from unnecessary issues, and it protects us from ourselves. So if the Lord is governing our heart, our mouth will be a blessing. God will bless it, but we also We'll have unnecessary things uh, avoided in our life. We won't say things that, man, we have to go back and do damage control. Not to say that it'll never happen, but the, the more our heart is like, the Lord, the less that will happen, and it becomes less and less and less. And you really start to think before you send that email, before you say that, before you text that, you stop and wait and pray because the Lord wants to work on your heart before you have any response to things. It's just a wise thing to do. Those whose hearts are hard, well, they have no control over their own mouths, and it can cost them dearly not only in this life, as it says here, the soul of the unfaithful feeds on violence, not only can their lives spin out of control, but they also, in verse 4, the lips shall have destruction, not only destruction uh, in the lives of other, ruining lives, but there's also destruction of kind of dying in that state, having to meet the Lord face-to-face face on Judgment Day with a mouth that has uh, really the whole life just not been controlled by the Holy Spirit. Moving on to verses 4 through 7, the soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Let's go ahead and read verses 5, 6, and 7 as well. A righteous man hates lying, but a wicked man is loathsome and comes to shame. Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but wickedness will overthrow the sinner. There is one who makes himself rich, yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor, yet has great riches. What a dichotomy there! Uh, what a um, contrast that the Lord picture uh, gives us a picture of in verse seven. Um, it's a paradox that there's one who makes himself rich and has nothing. One who makes himself poor and has great riches. You know, Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, because they were monetarily wealthy, he said that they were poor, naked, and blind. Now, in no way, if they looked at themselves in the mirror, were they poor, naked, or blind. They had it all. But these paradoxes in the Bible uh, are... Scriptural, are, are, are spiritual in nature. And these verses, verses 4 through 7, they zero in on uh, kind of the title of tonight's message, the, the life's work that will never be wasted, found in these four verses. Um, when we invest in the Lord, when we follow and obey the work of the Spirit in our life, when we obey the commands of Scripture, going back to the first verse... In the life of the believer, when our focus and our intent is Christ, there'll never be wasted work. It'll all, in some way, be part of God building us up, building His church up, building His kingdom up. But people looking on from the outside won't always see it that way, will they? they would look? You know, if you were looking at uh, in the New Testament, if you were looking at Lazarus or Lazarus is down on the ground eating the crumbs you know that the dogs are eating and you looked at the rich man which Jesus by the way does not say that that was a parable that actually he was recalling a real situation because he then refers to what's taking place in paradise that was not a parable Jesus said these are two real people and if you were looking at their life you would say Lazarus what a wasted life Look at yourself, the rich man, he's got it all. And Jesus said, you're, you're only seeing the here and now, I'm seeing the future. And one of these lives really was a waste, but it's not the one you would think. For the non-believer, Solomon here, uh, uh, he outlines three profiles. You can see them uh, starting in verse 4. The lazy man, then he says in verse 5, the wicked... Man, and then in verse 7 is the one who makes himself rich. So we have these three profiles. You have the lazy person, the reprobate, right? Is someone out there who is uh, creating, you know, thousands of pornography sites, just proliferating wickedness. Someone out there who is dealing drugs, killing people, murdering, robbing. Dictators of nations. These are the reprobates. Not to say that they can't be redeemed, but they're in a reprobate state. They cause incredible damage. They have a hatred. They have a loathsome for their fellow man. They don't really care. And then you have this third profile, not lazy, not reprobate. In other words, the third person can be a really good citizen. This person, the third of the list here, is the highly ambitious. Now. A highly ambitious person can be reprobate or a highly ambitious person can uh, kind of play by the rules and, and be a good neighbor. And, but just very ambitious to acquire wealth and success, even if by definition they're doing it as best we can tell the right way. There's plenty of people that would fit that description. In verse 4, we also see um, the righteous. Righteous. Those that follow the Lord uh, will be diligent. And throughout here, there's going to be that work, there's going to be that effort of the believer. In Hebrews 11.6, the Bible says, He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. And you have to ask yourself, Lord, am I diligently seeking You? Well, I came to Wednesday service. That's got to rank high up there right? You'll have to ask the Lord <laughs> if I diligently seek him, I have to ask the Lord. You know, he, he's not quite as impressed as our check marks as we can be. He doesn't really use that to measure. He looks where? At the heart could even come to church for years for all the wrong reasons. I was reading uh, my devotional from Martin Luther about this. He was talking about false Christians and true Christians in the, bo- in, in the church, and there's so many. And sadly, that's the reality. But the Lord looks at the heart. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know, if you came to two services a week but never prayed at all, it'd be hard to say, I diligently seek the Lord. You know, uh, be hard to say. You're diligently investing in your marriage. Say, well, me and my wife, we see each other twice a week. The rest of the time, we do not talk, because I don't have time for that. Be hard to say. I'm really investing in that relationship. So you have the lazy, and the you have the wicked or reprobate, and you have the the highly ambitious. And we know that in the in the wicked, in, in the in the realm of the world, you know, laziness, uh, it's not going to go well for you. You could end up having a really bad life by choosing not to work. Wickedness, you're going to cause a lot of other pain for everybody else's life, including your own, end up in prison or whatever it may be. And then, of course, uh, ambition, you might be lulled into sleep to thinking, you got it all, like the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus, although he did sense something was missing, did he? But the believer... We're not to be lazy. We're not to be wicked. We are to work hard, but not... The Scripture tells us not to have selfish ambition or self-centered ambition or self-directed ambition. But it has to be what kind of ambition? God-directed ambition. And if we're diligent to seek the Lord will flourish in the work that he's placed before us. It's not always what we, uh, we would choose for ourselves. He would say, no, I want you diverting your attention and spending your efforts over here. Notice also it says, the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. The soul of the... It doesn't say the bank account. Soul will be made rich. God wants to enrich our souls. He wants to nourish our souls. He wants to restore our soul, even those of us that are saved. We need, we need soul restoration on a regular basis. Refreshing. Times of refreshing. They come from the presence of the Lord. You can't get times of refreshing uh, through uh, a movie binge. You can't get times of refreshing from buying something new. You can't get times of refreshing even from success by the world standard. That only comes from the presence of the Lord. Only he can minister to the soul. That's why we see so many people that have a lot but are still miserable. But we need to be diligent. We're not to be lazy. This, verse 4, the soul of the diligent should be made rich. We're to be uh, diligent spiritually, but also that will work out itself practically. Say, I, I only have time to pray. I'll never wash the dishes. I'm so spiritual. I don't have time for menial tasks like washing the car, cutting the grass. Your neighbors will hate you soon. I was out of town, we were out of town for 10 days, and we got all that rain, it was up to here, and I was not, I was not liking it at all. And then I got home, and both mowers wouldn't work. I'm like, I am a good neighbor, I promise. I, you, know, you know my yard normally looks... you know. So anyway, um, we have... To, our spiritual diligence should work itself out practically, but it shouldn't be all practical, it shouldn't be all spiritual. The work of the Lord manifests itself in both, in the spiritual and in the practical. If we're diligent to seek the Lord, we'll flourish in the place that he's placed us. But again, sometimes it seems like that diligence isn't paying off in the life of a believer. You ever felt that way? Like, Lord, I'm doing all this, and it doesn't seem to be working. It doesn't seem to be fruitful. I'm not just being honest. You ever felt that way? I know I have. Lord, it doesn't seem... To be paying off, not now, not spiritually, not in the future. I, well, you can't see the future, but we kind of think we can sometimes. That's why Paul said, We were in Galatians not so long ago, Galatians 6 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. A lot of people lose heart, don't they? A lot of people say, well, I tried. I tried being a Christian for two years. It was too hard. So I gave it up. Well, of course it's hard. You're going to get, you ever seen a salmon try and swim upstream? You've got to get to a place that's not going to come easy, but you have the Lord to get you there. By the way, the salmon always make it there because God ensures that they get there, unless a bear gets them. A bear gets us, we go to heaven. So don't worry. Analogies only go so far in this world, you know, just so you remember that. But think about the life of Joseph. He was assured you're going to have these, these dreams are going to come true. They didn't seem like they were coming true, did they? In prison, sold in sla- slavery first, then in prison, 13 year hiatus from your family. It, it didn't want you anyway. Oh, the father did, but the brothers certainly didn't. David, you know, he's anointed to be king. Next thing you know, he's running for his life. Supposed to be shepherding the people. Instead, he's running for his life. He went from tending sheep to for a part-time gig of making David, uh, Saul happy. After a while, Saul wasn't happy with him. Then he's running for his life. Paul. Well, he had reached a point one time in his ministry, even though he had planted all these churches and built up saints and won many people to Christ, he's like, All have forsaken me. How about that? Lord, everyone's forsaken me now. Where is everybody? Where are all the people that I had that I had I had won to the faith and I had built them up, and they're nowhere to be found? But the Lord hadn't forsaken him, right? See, God tests our diligence. But he also tests the motives behind our diligence. True, it's not just the diligence. He tests the motives behind our diligence. And by the way, um, even our purposed hearts. Let's say uh, you purpose. Say, Lord, get on your knees. If you've had a good time in prayer and the Word. Say, Lord, I'm purposing to serve you diligently. That's a good thing to say. It's a good God wants those kind of words to come out of our mouth. He wants us to say, Lord, I'm, I'm purposing to serve you diligently. But even us saying it and meaning it still requires his blessing on it, his grace to bring it about, and his mercy. Does that make sense? You could say it and mean it, and you still need God's help. It's not, it's, in other words, if you just speak that, it doesn't just all of a sudden, poof, happen. That we need his help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. A verse I've been meditating on lately, uh, I had one a couple weeks ago I shared with you. Here's one I've been meditating on lately. Romans 9, 16. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. I've been thinking on that so much. It's not just that I have a will to serve the Lord. It's not just that I run after the Lord and run for the Lord, but it's based on his mercy that I would still have the will and still run for the Lord. How about you? In other words, the Lord told me, I've given you the desire. I've had you pray it back to me. I've had you purpose it in your heart, but none of that would still get you there. You still need my mercy. And that's what keeps us where? Humble, gracious, and saying, Lord, if you did anything, it's all of you. It's all of you. It's, you know, David, you know, he reached a point at one time where he reached a level of spiritual success that he forgot. A, for a temporary period, he forgot about the mercy of God, didn't he? It was tragic. If you and I forget about the mercy of God, we will be off the rails in no time flat. Even though we had meant what we said, we were running the right direction, it's not of him who wills, it's not of him who runs, it's but God who shows mercy. We set our heart on him, we set our heart on his commands, we, and then we wait and we ask for his mercy and we ask for his help. it will never stop. You'll continue to need his mercy and help all the way to the end of our lives. Look at verse 6. Uh, Righteousness guards him in the way who is blameless, Um, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. Our surrender to Christ keeps us when we're surrendered to Jesus and we're abiding in him, John chapter 15, when we're abiding in the Lord and surrendered to him, it keeps us from going after, because our eyes will still um, our eyes get distracted just like like our human eyes, uh, our physical eyes get distracted, our spiritual eyes get distracted too, and the spiritual eyes first take in what the physical sees, so we get distracted by the things of this world. If we're abiding in Christ, the branch can't jump off the tree. If we're not abiding in Christ, then we run after the things of this world. Righteousness, though, guards him whose way is blameless. Abiding in Christ is the only way that we maintain a righteous walk. There isn't any other way. And that keeps us from pursuing the passing pleasures of this world, the passing pleasures of sin. His righteousness is what guards us. Verse 7, there is one who makes himself rich yet has nothing, one who makes himself poor yet has great riches. There have been plenty of people who have come to Christ down through the ages and have given up wealth. C.T. Studd, many, many others. You can read uh, you know, different people that uh, the saints of old, some of them ended up in missionaries. Many down through the ages have given up wealth, inheritance, comfort, status to go and serve Jesus Christ. Even the apostles said, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. They, they made that statement to him, even though he said, hey, we, we really haven't given up anything. But in their minds, they had at first. But when you think about a church, uh, a church rarely starts off wealthy. Some do, but rarely do churches start off wealthy. They usually have humble origins. Not always, but typically the origin is humble. They rarely start off uh, with a lot of things, but over time churches can become wealthy. I mentioned Laodicea. They might be a rare exception that started wealthy because most everyone in Laodicea was wealthy, so when the church was formed, most of them from a material standpoint were wealthy, But the emphasis here um, certainly can speak to the financial, and at some level, always will speak to the financial. But remember, Jesus talked about being poor in spirit. The poor in spirit will not be dominated by anything. That was a message from the Lord right there. (laughs) Really, it's just our erratic system lately. So, um, You remember Moses said he esteemed the riches of Christ in the book of Hebrews greater than the riches of Egypt. He really said, Lord, I, I'd rather follow you into what looks like a life of real neediness than a life of plenty as Pharaoh. But, but Moses is a transition from being uh, a prince, to walking in a sandy desert for years, up to 40, and the, you know, or 40 to 80, and then another 40 with the children of Israel, uh, and living by faith instead of living by all the things that the pharaohs had. Well, that started where? That was in the heart, poor in spirit. He had humbled himself before the Lord. Thy will be done. But in uh, in, in the sense of The church of what uh, we normally see, Uh, again, the church is not normally made up of the rich, highly respected as a rule. There's some of that, but again, an entire church of that isn't typically the norm. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. And Paul was talking to Corinth, which had plenty of wealth and plenty of kind of, you know, had the big city appeal, but he said, not many of you were the big shots in town. Not many of you were driving the most expensive automobiles. Not many of you had all the things, but Christ appealed to you because you, you didn't have all this stuff holding you back like the rich young ruler. You were able to drop Menial things for the riches of Christ. Other people think they're dropping really big things to have this kind of really bummed out life following Jesus. But I'm not saying that if you look at the verse, there is one who makes himself poor yet has great riches. Uh, this is not to say that you need to sell everything tonight and start living on the streets. How poor can I get by tomorrow? Well, you could get very poor. But what it is saying is for the poor in spirit that we are to be, and this is, this is again, something that only you and the Lord will know, although it, to some people it would be evident depending on how you live out your answer. Uh, are you yielded, am I yielded, to God's plan for my life or not? Everyone has to ask, Lord, am I yielded to your plan for my life? Or have I said, I will take 30% of your plan, God, combine it with 70% of my plan, and together we have a great plan. And a lot of people do that, and they live an entire life like that. I get, All right, I, I, I hear you. I'll now move it up to 35% my plan, 65% your plan. Do we have a deal? You're never going to get the handshake from God. He wants us yielded to his plan. And it may not mean riches. It may not mean wealth. I fought going into the ministry as a pastor. Oh, my wife can tell you. I fought it hard. It, was, it uh, But at the end of the day, you have to determine, am I following Jesus or am I following, am I following me? Everyone has, not everyone's called to be a pastor. But whatever your calling is, God may say, You know, I don't want you taking that job transfer. I want you invested in this thing right here. Well, but that's what the career ladder says. God says, What about my ladder? Right? I've got you, I've got you on a path, and it might be different. We have to be really open to his plan. The poor in spirit says, Lord, your will be done. Jesus said to lay up treasure where? Heaven. That's only spiritual in nature. You can't, you can't put dollars and cents or bitcoins or anything else up in up in heaven. He's called us to be rich in good works. Uh, Paul said to the church in First uh, Timothy chapter 6, 17 and 18, he said, first of all, those of you that, that are rich, he said, and even though there wasn't apparently a lot of them, those of you that he, he are, uh, you need to be giving. You need to be helping. You know, we have many, uh, we, have, we have such wealth in the American church and yet we have ministries around the world dying on the vine. People are adding to their little personal kingdoms. And meanwhile, people are dying and going to hell. You think that God is not ever going to confront this? I Maybe I may in our lifetime he may confront it. I mean, he'll confront it individually, but he might confront it someday in a big way. He did with Israel. Like many people, naming the name of Christ, but not listening uh, to the voice of the Spirit. John Wesley, um, and by the way, I'll say this. It's not just prosperity-teaching churches that are in love with money. It's not just prosperity churches. A lot of times it's really dignified churches that never teach on prosperity because everyone in there is prosperous. There's no need to teach on this. The prosperity churches oftentimes are manipulating people who want to be rich and aren't. So if you have a church full of wealth, you don't need to teach prosperity teaching. You, do, you find something else to pat their back with. And that's the difference between the gospel and the scriptures and just being a hireling. John Wesley, he had a profound understanding. You know John Wesley, he circuit-riding preacher, Methodist. Uh, at the church today, he'd come back, and I'm sure he'd make a few changes here and there. But nevertheless... John Wesley had a profound understanding that the very virtues that start out, think about this, the very virtues that start out as application of biblical truth and wisdom later become, this is in his quote, I'm going to get to his quote, this is my perception of his his thinking, Um, the very foundation that start out, applied biblical truth and wisdom, later becomes the downfall of, of the very faith that was the original foundation. So, what do you mean by this? Let me read his quote and it'll make sense to you. This is what he said. And by the way, this happened um, a Lot. This happened to the nation of Israel. This happened to Solomon himself. Solomon went from humble, Lord, anything, just you can have anything you want, like a genie in a bottle type moment. It wasn't, but you can have anything you want. What did he say? Just give me wisdom. But later, he had it all. More money, perhaps, than any man that's ever lived. A thousand wives, kingdoms, all this stuff. And he walked away from Jesus. He walked away from the Lord. So the very foundation can later become a big problem. The U.S., it's already happened to the United States, and it's continuing to happen more and more and more. In other words, the very things that made us prosperous are the things that are now the downfall. A strong foundation and a moral ethic. Think about this. A strong foundation and a moral ethic that comes from the Scriptures will produce prosperity, and yet it's a trap. So why would God allow the very things that... This is what John Wesley says. He said this You know, here's in the 1700s, and here we see this today. He says, "...for religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality." And these cannot but produce riches. But as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and the love of the world and all its branches. He saw it. He's like, this is a strange thing. The very people that follow biblical principles will work really hard, they save a lot, and they make a lot because they follow biblical principles. Solomon proved this. He saved a lot. He worked a lot, he had a lot, but as soon as they got a lot, they no longer want a God. This is exactly the case with Israel as a nation, and America, you would say the the moral foundation, the Judeo-Christian ethic, is exactly why our country has become the most prosperous in the history of the world. But you go, and this has happened many times, hard work and frugality, first generation starts a company, what's the fourth generation son look like? Playboy. He's got a million Instagram followers. He's got a yacht. What happens? The very frugality and sensibility and moral ethic that got it started becomes problematic. It becomes a trap. And it becomes a noose, and people don't realize it's happening, which is why we must stay poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. And if you're focused on loving the Lord and working for the Lord, you can't fall in love with the stuff. Abraham didn't fall in love with the stuff. Lot did. True. Abraham didn't. Lot did. Abraham Lincoln, speaking of Abraham, Abraham Lincoln said this. He said about our own nation, he said, intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. Not only the God that made us physically, but the God that made the country what it is today. Do you realize how many of our people in the country today have no idea of the godly men and women that laid the foundation of what's here today, but they're in love with what has come of it. And that's what John Wesley, he saw it well before it ever happened, but he was looking backwards to former kingdoms, and he said this will happen again and again and again. And we have to be careful even as a church. If God were to bless us as a church, would we fall in love with the blessing or would we stay in love with the Lord? Coming to our last few verses here tonight, look at verse 8. The ransom of a man's life is his riches, but the poor does not hear rebuke. The ransom of a man's life is his riches. When I look at this, it comes down to this. What's of real value in your life? The ransom of your life, what's of deepest value? What's really of value? Riches, again, by Jesus' definition, when he spoke to the church Laodicea, were different than they were for the Laodicean. You're a wealthy man or woman if you have the riches of Christ. Because the other stuff is temporary. anyway. Life is but a what? Vapor. It appears for a little bit, and it's gone. But not the riches in Christ. If the ransom of your life is deep value, if it comes from the Lord, then we have something that will survive. The spiritually poor... Uh, they're destitute. Look, it says, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. The spiritually poor are destitute of the light of, of the life of Christ. As Jesus would say, the spiritually poor have ears they just don't hear. And before you and I got saved, we had ears that weren't hearing either, right? And hopefully now that we have ears that heard salvation and responded to it, we have ears that can be continually redirected. Whom the Lord loves, he what? Chastens. God chastens me way more than I wish he would. I don't know about you guys. And I've, I, I get more and more comfortable saying, Lord, are, are you chastening this, or are you just kind of strengthening me, or what is it, which is which? And, and he will show us which is which. What I have usually found is I end up with a pie chart answer from God. that I think in graphs and stuff like that. So anyway, so I come back in my mind, and Lord will say, most of it is strengthening you, but this much is chastening you. Which part of that is chasing me? Well, it's this area, this area, and this area. I don't have to have anyone explain it to me. I don't have to have my wife explain it, although she can sometimes help identify. Um, but the Lord, we, we can do that for each other, by the way. It's called, my friend Thomas Powell called it talking through our faith. Talking through our faith. Husbands and wife, that's a good thing. But, the lord will show this this part's actually chastening the other parts not the other parts just strengthening you doing this doing that making you you know but the chastening part you have to respond to and he might say i want you to start praying more and here's where i want you to direct it something like that i want you to open up your bible with your kids you've gotten away from it you used to do it you don't do it anymore Things like that, the Lord will speak in these ways, and he is chastening He's, and these you 've forgotten the priorities you 're doing the other thing, and so we have ears that can hear, and those are the deep things that God wants us to invest in. Look at verse nine, the light of the righteous rejoices i don 't know why I just I just partially did verse nine. I got ahead of myself there that was um A combo of eight and nine. Hope you enjoyed that. But anyway, um, verse nine, the light of the uh, righteous rejoices. The world may uh, may mock the light of Christ in our lives. And sometimes the world will mock the light of Christ. They may not mock it to you personally. They'll mock it on social media, they'll mock it here, they'll mock it there. And I've certainly had to mock it to me personally, maybe many of you have too, in witnessing opportunities or or family meetings where you're having a family reunion and somebody gets offended at something, you prayed too long or whatever it was. But the world might mock the light of Christ in us, but for us, the light of uh, righteousness um, rejoices. For us, that light of Christ is our source of joy. It's our source of hope. It's our source of strength. We know it's real. We know it's the real thing. We know it's the only authentic thing that produces joy and hope and strength. We can say, like with kids, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Because we believe that as we shine, God is ministering and healing and bringing peace and bringing joy to our life. And the light that's in us rejoices ultimately because we know the light that's coming to take us out of this world. The longer I'm saved, the more I'm, I I would really be okay if Jesus came back tonight. I don't know about you. I don't care anymore about, well, I really wanna make this one vacation one more time or this, that, and the other. Now give me heaven. The longer you're saved, you'll start to long for the real home. The early church said to encourage one another with these things. They had to encourage each other because they really wanted Jesus to come back. I think our brothers and sisters around the world feel like this. They don't understand why we'd want to hold on to uh, <laughs> such a flawed, uh, decrepit earth. But when we look up at the clouds and we see the sun shining, we know that the sun that shines much brighter the S-O-N, shines much shines much brighter than the S-U-N, is coming in those very clouds. I'm going to do that cloud teaching, by the way, for those of you that were I hadn't forgotten. but looking at the right date. But the light of a life without Christ is just a temporary source, isn't it? It's like having a flashlight with only one battery and you are nowhere near a store. It's only got a limited time. You can do your best to conserve the light, but it's not going to last. We have the light that's eternal in us, It'll never be taken out. Um All right, we'll finish these last couple. I think we're okay here. Verse 10, by pride, nothing comes but strife, but with, a, uh, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Well, this is very true. Uh, pride, <laughs> uh, you get two prideful people together and you have yourself a battle. It, it's going to have to take one humble person or there's going to be strife. There's, you get two massive egos in the room, there's going to be a mano a mano, isn't there? But you and I, you know, we even in our relationships and life, let there be light. That was the previous verse. Why couldn't that have come on with verse nine? It would have been perfect. There's not even a light word in verse ten. See, we're not do, we're not doing showmanship here, people. You can tell. You get the raw. Mis- if it was if we were really choreographed as a church, like some of these really hip preachers. And they would have that time. They could actually just give a nod. And boom, the light right at verse 10. But we don't do that here. We get what we get, which is a faulty electrical system. Nothing but, you know, but in the body of Christ, we have to stay humble because pride actually puts ministries at odds. Pride has, pride's destroyed churches before. Pride's taken pastors away from Jesus, and the whole thing's collapsed. We have to stay humble. And if we uh, find ourselves in constant arguments, as Pastor Chuck says, you might want to look at your pride. Because If you're constantly in arguments with people, it's usually not everybody else. It's usually our pride. Verse 11, Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. Uh, We know that God only wants us us to use honest means. Uh, But we already talked about money, so just a different angle on this as we kind of come to these last two verses. Um, It says, but he who gathers by labor will increase. Uh, There is an increase that we want to see in our life. There's an increase that we want to see at Calvary Chapel Richmond. I want the Lord to multiply, not for a number's sake, but that more people would get saved, more disciples. Jesus would go and make disciples, and, and that uh, we would see a multiplication. And We, you know, we saw uh, someone to come to Christ even this Sunday, and that's a blessing. God wants to, uh, time after time, bring another adopted person into the family of God. God wants to adopt everyone in Chesterfield County. So uh, we're not about, man, we want to be a big church like so-and-so church. It has nothing to do with that. We want to have disciples grow. And as you guys grow in the faith, we will see more people saved. We will see more ministries raised up over time. And we'll see the ones that are already in operation become stronger and the roots go deeper and more lives touched. So we do want to see an increase. It says right here, he who gathers by labor. We're to labor for the Lord not wasted work. Some of that labor will be prayer. And by the way, I think sometimes in in our personal life, as well as the life of church, sometimes a church body, and your family, by the way, your family, you as an individual, and a church family will follow certain patterns. As we grow in the Lord, God will take us through a season. We kind of stay in a certain place, and then he'll take us to another place. We'll come up, and we'll go to another place, and There'll be new challenges, there'll be new battles, there'll be new things, but we still have to labor through it. And he'll bring fruit, provided that we not only do it honestly, which should always happen at church, but we do it according to the Lord's instructions. Not just honestly, but according to the Lord's instructions. Because love overrides, sometimes uh, truthfully, no, it says it in the manual right here, you were supposed to be here at Seven says it right here in the manual. But I was getting my teeth pulled, and the dentist took too long. Well, no, it says the manual. You you see what I'm saying? So part of our labor is that we actually have grace for people because we're connected to one another. We have to work hard but also understand that it's, it's not an easy thing. We've got to work through our own selves, through issues, and then over time... There will be an increase. And then lastly in verse 12, we'll close with verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. And we'll close with this because um, we talked about uh, hope is that joyful expectation. We talked about this in our Ephesian study. Hope is that joyful expectation. A lot of times when it comes to Christian life, the joyful expectation when God makes us wait longer than we thought it would be the heart can get sick we can get impatient we can get depressed we can get really mad we can want to bail well it's taken Jesus too long to come back right and all, this, all those things can actually have a negative impact in the heart but that's why the Lord says to Wait on him. Wait patiently for the Lord. Let patience have its perfect work. When the desire comes, some of those things are in life. Poor Abraham and Sarah, waiting for Isaac, waiting for Isaac, waiting for Isaac, waiting for Isaac. we got to fix this, right? Big, Big mistake, wasn't it? We can do the same thing. The heart becomes anxious. It becomes, this isn't going to be solved. I need to solve it. But the Lord says, if you wait patiently, eventually, if our desires, he'll give us the desires of our heart. If the desires of our heart match the Lord's, eventually it will come to pass. And faith is that which we can't see that we believe, right? I have never seen Jesus face to face. I'm going to ask you, I don't know, raise your hand if you really believe he's coming back someday. Raise your hand if you really believe he's coming back, or if you think that this is just something that other Christians believe. I truly believe he's coming back. I believe that more than I believe I'm standing here on this stage. I absolutely believe it. So we have to remember that. See, when that when the desire of the Lord comes, we're going to be in the presence of the tree of life for all eternity. Amen? Let's close in prayer.